In the heart of the Amazon rainforest sits an old relic of America's industrial past, one that points to the auto giant Ford Motor Company and the man himself, Henry Ford. Come with us now as we explore the story of the rise and fall of Ford's jungle ghost town, Fordlandia. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Midwest Ghost Town, Fordlandia. This is Dan, I'm your host, your history enthusiast, and your ghost town adventurer and storyteller. Fordlandia is an interesting one. I'm going to give full credit to stumbling across this one to my co-worker, Paula. Paula, if you're out there listening, thank you. And the whole thing came about one day as we were talking at work, and I was filling Paula in on some of the ghost town adventures and stories I was working on. And out of nowhere, Paula starts to bring up a book she was reading by Bill Bryson. Now, some of you might recognize Bill from some of his notable work, A Walk in the Woods, which is a hilarious book where he hikes the Appalachian Trail. Paula goes on to tell the story that Bill outlines this in his book about an abandoned city by the Ford Motor Company down in the Brazilian Amazon rainforest called Fordlandia. And I have to admit right here, she had me right there just with the whole thing about Amazon rainforest and, of course, an abandoned city by Ford. I mean, seriously, what? I have not even heard of this story, and I had never heard of Fordlandia or even had a clue that Ford had even tried to start a city, let alone one in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. Now, can you say intrigued? Because I was. And so here is the rest of the background story just to give us a little intro. Ford is dealing really with a rubber crisis. The market for rubber is skyrocketing, and we're going to get more into that one. But for now, understand that the cost of rubber is high, and Ford wants to remedy this by starting his own rubber plantation. So he does some homework, discovers there are only a few select places in the world where you can grow the rubber tree. But as luck has it, the Brazilian rainforest happens to be one of these key places. And within the last few years, due to events by Great Britain that could clearly be seen as acts of piracy, Brazil was hurting in the rubber production market, even though they once were the world's leading producer. So along comes Ford with this big name and his can-do and industrious attitude and... He's going to save the rubber trade in Brazil, and he's going to build a city in his name, producing rubber on a mass scale, making it good for Brazil and good for Ford. His production of the Model T and soon the Model A would use vast amounts of rubber for tires, hoses, and other parts, and they end up naming this whole plantation in town Fordlandia. But as you can imagine, the Amazon rainforest is not the tamest of places. And so the whole adventure of starting a city and a rubber plantation came at an enormous cost, an enormous failure, which we're going to go into. So I think we'll go into two episodes with this, episode one, and there's a lot to unpackage and a lot to tell. So after talking with Paula and thinking more about Fordlandia, I was browsing some of the books in the history section in Barnes & Noble and came across this book, named Fordlandia, The Rise and Fall of Henry Ford's Forgotten Jungle City by Greg Grandin. So I pause here to give the author credit in my research because I've bought the book, 
I read it cover to cover, and I was so fascinated by the stories and the research that Greg put together. In fact, it was so good. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Now, that is a good book, folks, and I'm not making any money on this thing. I just want to endorse the book and encourage you to go buy it and read it. It has a lot of great detail, so be ready for that. But I found it super interesting, and now let's get into it. Part one, listen to the story of the Amazon rainforest. You can hear the Amazon River. It's almost like it has a life of its own, living, breathing, a strong heartbeat pushing the water along, brushing against new countryside, gently sweeping in some parts and violently rushing down rapids in others, winding itself through 4,000 miles of continuous river system, water upon water upon water, endless. Making up 15% of the Earth's river water, this is the Amazon. And from within its own living structure, it gives birth to other creatures, breathing life into different species from the mighty jaguar stalking its prey to the death squeeze of the giant anaconda. The Amazon's beauty certainly can camouflage its own hidden dangers, from the miles of pit vipers, bullet ants, stinging hornets, poisonous frogs, vampire bats, alligators, and piranhas, just to make a few. But it also hides the beauty of the plant life and vegetation, most notably the rubber tree. Sitting still within the depths of the basin stands the tree. The old slash marks, marking where machetes had cut into its back from rubber harvesters collecting the tree's lifeblood for the making of huge rubber balls for natives to canoe downstream to sell or barter for the local goods. This was the Amazon rubber trade. There was nothing tame or organized about it, but there was a system, barely alive now that Asia had stolen their secret, but still existed, raw, untamed, wild, like the Amazon itself. As one observer put it, nature here is violent. I see choking and fighting for survival, just rotting away. Of course, there is a lot of misery, but it is to say that misery is all around us. The trees here are in misery. The birds here are in misery. They don't sing. They just screech in pain. Now, let's go ahead and let's compare it to the mighty Mississippi in the United States. And if you have a well-managed industrial river running down the heartland of the U.S., running from Itasca in Minnesota to the Gulf of Mexico through Louisiana and Mississippi, you have the Mississippi River. Managed, controlled, tamed by locks, levees, dams. It is the most managed water system in the world. The Amazon, on the other hand, was the opposite a wild river, spinning its way through most of the mid to northern countries in South America. Almost like a spider web, spanning out in the depths of the jungle to catch its latest flying insect victim. The river was made up of shifting bars, fast-changing depths, rapids, and floodplains alike. It was so wild that it attracted the thrill-seeking former president Theodore Roosevelt and his son Kermit to try and navigate an unknown tributary now named after the president himself, Roosevelt 
River, or better known as Rio Roosevelt. They were outrunning natives who stalked them, bypassing and foraging rapids at the rapids, losing several of his men by death, a near miss for both Kermit and President Theodore Roosevelt himself. It seemed almost foolhardy for any man to go trekking through the rainforest, hunting the untamed, discovering the lost and navigating the unknown. Yet, it didn't stop Henry Ford. He had heard of the president's expedition, and he believed that the rubber crisis was solved at the hands of Ford Motor Company. And if you're willing to fight the Amazon and help build his dream, his vision, Ford Landia. Ford wanted to take his ideal home, an American vision, and replant it in Brazil. A remake, a redo, or rebirth, if you will. And he held this philosophy that a man who works hard should have the nice things in life as well. And so in the heart of the Amazon, Ford built Cape Cod-styled shingled houses for his workers and urged them to plant flower gardens and vegetable gardens, make life as much like the ideal America as possible. Bring Dearborn, Michigan to South America. This was his whole attitude. It was even told that Fordlandia was a Midwestern dream complete with electrical lights, telephone poles, washing machines, and refrigerators. And so, the birth of Fordlandia was underway. More on the ghost town right after this. Hey there, Dan from Midwest Ghost Town. We like to look at our channel as a complete community. And like any community, we love to hear from each other. And that means you. If you have a place that we need to cover and want to hear more about some of these places, don't hesitate to reach out. You can reach us at MidwestGhostTown at gmail.com or directly on our website, which is MidwestGhostTown.com. That's MidwestGhostTown.com. And we know that there is a lot to tell. And we know that you have a story. Can't wait to hear about it. And let's keep history alive. It didn't take long for Fordlandia to start taking shape, as Ford would spend millions, but nobody could prepare them for the trouble with rubber trees. Leaf blight nearly did them in after the first plantation fell victim to blight, but in the middle of the disaster unfolding with the rubber tree plantation, the town itself began to take shape with a central square, sidewalks, indoor plumbing, golf courses, and naturally, the Model T. In the shadows of the forest, a 150-foot-tall water tower went up, holding 150,000 gallons of water and boasting the tallest man-made structure in the Amazon at the time, pumping half a million gallons of water daily. And not far behind that was the laying of miles of buried pipes, hooking up toilets, sinks, and an elaborate sewer system. If you can imagine and fire hydrants, all powered by the electric plant set up nearby. Steam powered through boilers and generators, Fordlandia was an Amazon rainforest dream. And it's important to understand a few things about Henry Ford. First off, Ford was an industrial genius. He didn't invent the assembly line, although we might think that he did. I know I've heard stories in the past, but that's not really where the assembly line came from. He basically borrowed it, and he perfected it for the assembly of his Model Ts. And the idea itself coming to him from the observation of 
meatpacking plants, and how the entire process of slaughter to the cutting of meat and shipping from factory to table in 1911, the process took just under 7,000 Ford workers to make literally 78,440 Model Ts. But in 1913, just a few years later, with the use of the assembly line, now he took this whole model and this whole approach, the amount of cars built by Ford nearly doubled. And by 1921, Ford had captured half of the American car market, producing 2 million Model Ts a year and making them 60% cheaper than the previous decade. Ford had this underlying philosophy that the key was to create a loyal worker. And to do this, you needed to help them find fulfillment outside the factory. And this would start with higher wages. He shocked the entire world and announced a $5 a day wage for an eight-hour workday. That nearly doubled the average standard salary, and naturally, the world laughed. Ford is crazy, they said. Ford will lose everything. Ford will go bankrupt. And yet his turnover rate plummeted. And Ford himself became one of the most admired men in the world and an international symbol for industrial success. But with all these higher wages came strings attached. The Ford philosophy didn't just stop with higher wages, but it started at the factory and drove deep into his workers' homes and into their lives. His employees had to live a certain lifestyle. They were not to waste money, and their houses had to be clean. And Ford had spies, thugs, if you will, and they would go and check on this. They would regularly go to the homes of the workers, and they'd gently persuade. I put that in quotations. They would gently persuade them to have their act together. No drinking, living a moral, clean life. More can be said in this whole era where Ford basically had his own henchmen or army hired as security workers, but also used for persuading, if you will, right? So typically using force, in one of my older episodes in season one, I did a podcast on this, uh, the sport of boxing and ghost towns. And one of the characters in that mentioned of his work underneath Ford, basically doing the physical deeds of persuading so Ford had total control, and this was the exact philosophy that he wanted to bring to the jungle. And Ford coming to Brazil was at first met with huge fanfare. He was almost seen as a savior, if well. Mentioning of bringing $5 a day wages in the United States was large enough, but bringing that to South America was like winning the lottery. Many of these workers were used to making cents, and now they were bringing up the possibility of multiple dollars? In one single day of work, the entire rubber trade in Brazil was dead, which could really be traced back to the late 1800s, where an Englishman by the name of Henry Wickham came to Brazil near the Tapajos River. And he attempted to go into the rubber trade, nearly dying himself, but he ends up surviving thanks to U.S. Confederate exiles, bringing his family and taking care of them. Now, this story is important. We're going to go more into this and how this really um, creates this mistrust and everything else because it marks what should go down in history as the greatest robbery in the world. Piracy at its finest. Wickham had been a failure his entire life, but he finally succeeded with one thing, stealing 70,000 Amazon rubber tree seeds 
Around 1876, Wickham steals the seeds for Great Britain. He turns them over to the Royal Botanic Gardens in London, where they are nurtured and developed for the use and creation of a new Asian rubber plantation. In direct competition with the Brazilian trade, some of the story of this is disputed, but there is one thing that should be noted, and that's the fact that Wickham's great success in bringing the seeds, stealing the seeds, if you will, however you want to term it, he ends up being knighted by Queen Victoria, cementing his place in British history as a hero and securing his place in Brazilian history as an evil villain. The story doesn't stop there, however, because securing and developing those seeds caused the rise of the Asian rubber tree market, where they could run a much more sufficient operation and a cheaper operation from growing labor costs, shipping costs, and in 1912, Asia was producing 8,500 tons of latex a year, compared to the Amazon's 38,000 tons. Less than two years later, Asia was exporting 71,000 tons, and less than a decade from that, 370,000 tons. Brazil was crushed until Ford came along. And this is where disaster really strikes. You see, Ford had this plan all along, that he would create another Dearborn, Michigan, down in the jungle, but the mixture of American values and the values of future workers that were living in the Amazon region were two worlds apart, literally. Fordlandia, and along the Tapajos River, which is a nearby tributary, was quite a ways from the Atlantic entrance. Everything was starting to come together, but the first thing that needed to happen was the planting of thousands of new rubber tree seeds so the plantation could be started before the town was even built. But the mistrust towards outsiders coming into Brazil, thanks to that entire Wickham event, caused major delays. From an embargo placed on the seeds to the unloading of some of the ships that were sending building supplies to build Fordlandia. And to put pressure on the whole thing, was a deal that was in place that Ford must have 1,000 acres planted by the end of July in 1929, where all concessions and deals that the government had given him would be revoked. So we have a timeline. And though they were able to get the trees planted, the first crop was an absolute failure. More on this. But the other matter that was pressing was the fact that Ford Company kept sending shipment after shipment, but the cargo began to pile up on the docks due to the government stalling. Tax dollars began to add up the longer the goods sat. But years into the making of the plantation, around 1931, there were 16,000 tons of goods, anywhere from paint and steel to train rails, sitting in a warehouse, unused. And as this was growing, so were the negative feelings towards Ford. There were reports of corruption around the initial deal that Ford had with the Brazilian government. And to add insult to injury, the workers that were initially put into place to plant and grow the trees and to start building the town were only being paid 30 cents a day. While putting in the books, or the managers did anyway, 80 cents a day. The Ford managers were pocketing the difference. Not only that, but the workers came in with the thought that they would be making $5 a day. And even though 80 cents a day was a much larger than average pay, it was the hope and the thought of making their fortune that brought them to work for Ford in the first place. 
the workforce began to disappear. Fordlandia wasn't even off the ground running yet, and they were already falling apart. And this is where the issue of the forest created a crisis. Blakely, the standing manager of Fordlandia at the time, was faced with clearing out the rainforest to create a clearing for the site. They were waiting on tractors, but the delay in the equipment arriving caused Blakely to take action without them. When they did finally get them, they quickly ran out of gas. The forest was large and the trees were extremely hard lumber, and after several months clearing out the forest, only a few hundred acres had been cleared. So, they turned into using fire to clear the forest. But it was the rainy season, and as soon as they would get a fire going, the rain would put the fire out. So they started using kerosene instead and created a huge fire. The flames grew over 100 feet and quickly grew out of control, killing many of the wildlife. They started a fire that lasted for days. More on Fordlandia in a moment. As usual, I wanted to take a moment. Thank you for listening. We are a community over here at Midwest Ghost Town, and you can follow along wherever you get your podcast. You can also follow along directly at our website, midwestghosttown.com. Consider subscribing, but if not, we're glad just to have you come along. I want to talk about some future episodes coming up in February. We'll finish out this two-part series of Fordlandia this week and next, but following this series, we will be celebrating Black History Month by diving into a couple ghost towns that are tied directly with the African-American descent and rich in history with ghost towns surrounding and celebrating black history. We'll start the series in Kansas telling the story of the ghost town of Nicodemus. And as always, here on this channel, let's work together and keep history alive. All right, Dan, back at you here. So Fordlandia is starting out as a colossal disaster. Everything is going wrong from mismanagement to government corruption, mistrust of Ford, and reports are getting back to the cities in the area that Ford is absolutely being wasteful. And this leads to Dearborn quickly acknowledging that they needed to fire their manager in charge, Blakely. And with his dismissal came the next big mistake by Ford, the hiring of Captain Enor Oxholm. Now, Oxholm had no experience with botany or plants, but this didn't bother Ford. Henry Ford had this attitude. He despised people who were so-called experts. He much rather them hire a worker than someone who'd come off as being just a big brain. He was quoted even saying that, none of our men are experts. We have mostly, unfortunately, found that it is necessary to get rid of a man as soon as he thinks himself an expert because no one ever considers himself an expert if he really knows his job. And there was another quality that put Oxholm high on Ford's list, absolute honesty. He even went to tell Oxholm himself that it was his honesty that he needed the most in this project of getting Fordlandia built and off the ground. And from there, Oxholm began his work. But there were several big mistakes right at the start. He refused to pay a fraction of cost to have his ships unloaded because he wanted to do it himself. This blunder alone ended with a fight with imports that lasted nearly three years. 
More distrust, bad feelings toward Ford grew from this, and authorities began to harden. Oxholm was known to be a big man, but with a weak mind, which is what his assistants would say, and this will make complete sense the further we dig into the story. See, it makes no sense that Ford would hire this guy. They were already dealing with this disaster, and now having a guy with no experience and what was needed the most, planting rubber trees, was absolute nonsense. And he had three key problems, right? Number one, he couldn't get labor. Foremen were powerless in stopping workers from simply getting in their boats and leaving. And this could have been from a bunch of reasons. One, leaving because it was turning into the dry season. And this is when the insect season begins. And with the insect season comes the fear of disease and fever. Now, they were locals. They knew better than the Americans. They were used to this way of life from the rainy season to the dry season. And they knew that when the rainy season went, that the insects came out. And it was just natural that they understood. Number two, living in the Amazon was way too easy. Food was everywhere. They didn't know what hunger was. And so obviously this caused an additional problem in terms of finding workers because it was easy. One Ford administrator wrote, Avocados grow wild. Wild bananas are sweet, yellow and used for desserts. The natives would bring back grapefruits, oranges, papaya, lima beans. Beans grow about 10 times the size of Michigan beans. The orange was bigger than the grapefruit. Fishing was wonderful. This gives you an idea of how easy it was for the natives to live. And number three, they were used to a different way of pay. They would typically work on a credit system and be indebted to work. Wages meant nothing. But number four, and this is important, if the wages did mean something, like I mentioned earlier, they might have been majorly disappointed to learn that they were getting 35 cents rather than $5 a day. All this added up. Oxholm got desperate. He started to hire migrants that were lame, blind, unemployed, and more. There was a 300% turnover rate. Ford Landy had to hire 6,000 just to keep 2,000 on the payroll. But it was the rotting of the town that really started to spell the doom for Oxholm. Service boats would come close, but anchor off of Ford Landy's property, and they would offer booze to prostitutes. And there was nothing to stop them from going on their boats and heading to these service boats, completely corrupting the town. And against Ford's Puritan stance, there was to be no alcohol. But these riverboats would pull up, and their workers would swarm aboard to buy beer, and they would buy rum, and Ford Landia started to become a place for all the undesirables and criminals to come and gather. Soon there were meat and fruit shops, gambling houses. Villages started to be built along the shores, and even though Oxholm tried to have these villages destroyed, they ran into resistance. It was getting out of control. Often, Oxholm was so overwhelmed by it all that he would just take a boat, sit offshore, and drink rum himself as he looked across the river towards the filth of Forlandia. And this whole alcohol thing, this was something that Ford despised. Henry Ford wanted Oxholm to uphold prohibition in Fordlandia. He even told reporters that he would convert Detroit's breweries to produce alcohol for his cars. He despised alcohol just that much. And here was Oxholm drinking himself. 
Ford learned of the alcohol problems and wrote back to Oxholm saying, we absolutely will not have it on our property. We know from events that have happened during the past year that drinking has taken place and there will be absolutely no tolerance. But Oxholm was powerless. Things were out of control. Meanwhile, as things were growing out of control, sickness and disease were also taking their toll. The hospital facility was dealing with the workers getting syphilis, malaria, dysentery, parasites, typhoid, ringworm, skin ulcers. Nearly everyone came to work had a disease, and Oxholm couldn't afford to turn them away. And the medical care was free. So word started to spread. But one thing Oxholm did do, he refused to treat the women who had sexually transmitted diseases. And the hope was that if he wouldn't treat them, that they would simply just go away. And the population of the families with that free health care began to grow. Workers would bring their families, often five or more children, and these children would also suffer from being malnourished, having hookworm. They would also have intestinal illnesses, jungle fevers, and it was growing worse as riverboats kept bringing family and friends to take advantage of that free medical care. The population was growing, and Fordlandia was becoming worse daily. The people were dying, and it was becoming a crisis. At this point, there were 90 people buried in the cemetery, but only 62 were workers from Ford's company. Snake bites, ant stings, vampire bat bites were growing. There were even reports of babies being snatched by jaguars. And Oxholm himself could relate, losing four of his own children. Buildings were in disrepair from the mill to the records building where the roof was constantly leaking on records from the rain. And Oxholm had had enough. By May 1930, he was done. Now, records don't show whether he quit or if he was fired, but Ford is pretty quiet on this subject. It's assumed he was fired, and apparently he had asked Ford if he could captain one of his ships again, and Ford refused. Fordlandia rises from the ashes in part two that's coming up next week. The rise and fall of Fordlandia in the heart of the Amazon rainforest. A ghost town of the ages. Buildings left behind marking their century-old testimony. A story of the historical past of the auto industry. As the Model T and Model A would fight for lower costs for rubber. And increased production. Fordlandia survives another failure. And begins to rise from the ashes. Problems fixed and a boomtown takes shape. All in our next episode. Let's keep history alive. This is Midwest Ghost Town. <laughs>